Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChumpaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, an internal audit and compliance consulting firm headquartered in Los Angeles, California. I'm also a well-known speaker on topics like COSO 2013, SOX 404, quality assessment reviews, internal auditing, and related topics. Today's interview is with Robert Smallwood. Robert is an information governance and e-records consultant, speaker, and a noted author of a recently published new book titled Information Governance, Concepts, Strategies, and Best Practices. His other publications include Managing Electronic Records, Methods, Best Practices, and Technologies, and also Safeguarding Critical E-Documents, Implementing a Program for Securing Confidential Information Assets. Welcome, Robert. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. We're excited to have you as well. And I wanted to get started about a term that I hope that our audience members um, can gravitate towards, which is you know, intellectual property in terms of the, the IP definition, can you share with our listeners how do you define intellectual property? Well, you know, the sort of the formal definition is, is, is typically, you know, a work that's uh, created by uh, a creative, creative work like a patent or a copyright or a manuscript or a design, blueprints, those kinds of you know, patentable and can be protected by law. And, um, you know, this, this you know, could include even just the, the packaging of your product or, um, or other trade secrets. But uh, I guess for purposes of protection and auditing and security, uh, I would expand that definition a little more uh, to include any confidential information in an organization that helps it maintain its competitive position. So uh, this could include strategic plans, your internal strategic plans, marketing plans, price lists, your vendor lists, your customer and prospect mailing lists, even your custom, even your company internal best practices. So uh, if if these were leaked or your competition got a hold of these things, it would give them advantage. So so they would they would know really what you're doing or what perhaps you're planning on doing. So although those confidential documents don't represent IP. I believe that they need to have the same level of care and, and protection because it can threaten your competitive position if they leak out. Right. So, so really it's, it's not only just a, a legalese type of term, but it's also kind of putting your um, competitive advantage uh, inventory list of items, like, like you said, those best practices, customer lists, um, you know, core strategies or who knows, maybe even financial modeling that you've come up with that are confidential. So right. it, it seems like the definition is pretty broad. Yeah, it's pretty broad uh, in my view, um, but I guess the reason to be, to be wary of that is that there are incidences of hacking, you know, uh, left and right, and there's, there was an incident in the U.N. in Geneva where they found out that, uh, you know, the Chinese had hacked in and, and had been monitoring 
the UN's emails and all their activities in the Geneva office for three or four years. So you could have an intrusion and, and, or a breach and, and not be aware of it. It could be going on right now, and you could not be aware of it because uh, there are certain techniques that, that hackers can use to, to, uh, you know, to, to cover their tracks. So um, you, know, you really need to, to focus on protecting that, that intellectual property directly, that, that, those, that confidential information directly, so that even if it does get access, they're not able to actually read it and view it. And I'll give you some examples of some technologies that can do that. Okay. No, great. Yeah, I think our listeners would love it. And, and also, just to kind of switch gears, about the new 2013 COSO framework, <clears throat> we've now seen a more comprehensive view of corporate governance impacting outside service providers. Can you share with our listeners some key best practice solutions of how to successfully outsource the management and monitoring of their intellectual property? Uh, yes, uh, my, my recommendations would be similar to um, wh when you'd select a cloud provider or outsourcing most anything IT related. So you're going to want to ask questions like, is this, is this outsourcing company, is this provider, do they subcontract? Or are they allowed in your contract to subcontract? And are those subcontractors, you know, what sort of scrutiny are they under? Are they obligated to comply under U.S. laws? Um, for instance, one firm outsourced the management of their electronic medical records to a, to a company in India, unbeknownst to the uh, original uh, company, the original hospital. And uh, later, the employees of that company decided they had something that they could reveal to the public and was worth something. So they demanded to be paid much more, or they would reveal all these medical records publicly, which would be, in our country, an egregious violation of HIPAA and healthcare privacy laws, but they're not bound by that. And there was no way to stop this because the subcontracting was done without the hospital knowing um, originally. So um, you need to know, can they subcontract? This is a contractual issue up front, but can they subcontract? And then how uh, are those subcontractors scrutinized? That's, uh, that's one key thing. Another, another key thing, if you're outsourcing uh, the, the handling of your, your IP, and you know, this, this could also mean just shipping blueprints or designs to China for use, but you still want to protect them after that. Um, well, what is that company's employee screening process? Are the, comp are the employees bonded? Or do they sign confidentially, uh, confidentiality agreements? And are they U.S.-based and subject to U.S. laws? That's another uh, question to ask. Who's going to be touching and handling my IP? Um, another question to ask is, do they handle the IP of uh, perhaps any of your close competitors? And if you're a bank and there's a bank across the street, do they, are you both customers of the same, same uh, outsourcing firm? What safeguards are in place to ensure that your IP cannot be hacked by that competitive firm or insiders? So what measures are in place? Do we have a dedicated server, for instance? Um, or are they using virtual machines where perhaps our data could be sitting next to our competitors' data and they have access to it and perhaps through a back door they could access it? So you need to ask those kinds of questions. Where is the IP going to physically reside and what security measures are in place? Um, another thing I would, I would recommend is that what are their security audit processes? Um, you know, are, 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 are IT security standards being employed? employed? There are standards like ISO 2701, that, that series through 2706, uh, 2701, I believe, um, which, is an I, which is an IT security standard. 
or are they using ISO 38500 or, or IT governance frameworks like COBIT or ITIL? So what sort of standards and best practices are they using in their shop? And are they using best practices, for instance, in database security? And then what technology is being used? So are they encrypting your databases? Are they masking the databases? Do they uh, encrypt the communications to you? Or do they use a technology that I'd like to introduce that most people don't um, really know about called information rights management? Uh, you're, you're familiar with probably digital rights management, which, which is um, protecting the ability to copy with you know, music or videos. And that, that's sort of in the retail marketplace. But in the enterprise marketplace, information rights management means protecting any kind of confidential documents or um, any kind of uh, uh, IP. So information rights management is software that can, upon creation of a document, can secure that document and you assign the rights at that time, the right to view, the right to print, the right to edit. Edit, yeah. Uh, that, yeah. that type of thing. And, and even the right <laughs> to forward that, that document. Um, or there's, there's contextual information rights management software now. This is, some of this development is coming out of the military applications out of Tel Aviv, and contextually they've developed the ability to Maybe you are allowed to print your reports in your accounting department, but you, right. but, uh, but someone from human resources or, um, or or from purchasing can view the reports, but they can't print them. So it's contextual. Or maybe you can view them from your desktop, but not from your laptop. Or maybe you can view them during the business day, but not not after hours. That type of thing. Right. So it controls all of the access to these information rights, even even after that IP leaves the, the company. So in the example of you have an employee that might have all of your uh, you know, trade secrets and an IP on their laptop, as soon as they're terminated or they quit, uh, you can switch off the access to those documents, and they're, they're, they're lying there encrypted. So if they try to open them the next time, it has to go to the cloud or to a server, to get authority to open those documents. So you have instantly turned off access to those encrypted documents um, upon termination. Or, uh, so you can still have control of documents once they leave the organization using information rights management technology. Um, <clears throat> we can talk a lot about that a little bit more. But uh, other questions I would ask is, are they using the cloud? Is this outsourcing provider that's managing your IP? going to use the cloud. Cloud's very popular. It's very economical. <clears throat> they may be using it. They probably are. What kind of measures are they using uh, in terms of security? And um, I guess one more would be the backup and disaster recovery plans and, and have those been tested. Uh, I lived in New Orleans for 25 years, and I was in the midst of uh, Hurricane Katrina. In fact, that's what I wrote my first book about was my Hurricane Katrina experience. And um, there was a, an Internet company downtown that had tested their disaster recovery plan. They had a generator in the basement that they, they'd actually run on their entire data center for a week. And this was just what they did every year. Well, when Hurricane Katrina hit, they were the only ones that were up, and they were still servicing their customers, and they were still keeping hospitals going. Uh, wow. Systems. So they, they tested their plan, and the biggest problem they had was after a week, there just wasn't any fuel coming into town. So they were over the radio and any other way trying to ask people to you know, bring in um, diesel fuel to keep their generator running because they were uh, keeping the information systems of some hospitals running at the time. So um, all of those kinds of things, 
need to be considered when you're outsourcing your intellectual property. Wow. I mean, that's an amazing story, or a success story, actually, of how, you know, testing and running a disaster um, recovery system, you know, <laughs> the importance of it and, and the fact that it worked. You know, um, obviously, you can't think of every single thing that could go wrong, um, like the diesel fuel issue, you know. I mean, who really expects that they're going to be down for weeks or months at a time, right? Right. Nobody expected that. A hurricane had never hit New Orleans directly. And I know guys that were in the disaster recovery, uh, business continuity business, they could not get anybody to buy you know, into creating a plan because it just never happened. Well, same thing really all along the west, the east coast, and they had Superstorm Sandy you know, last year. So it, it can really happen. So you really do need to have plans, and they really do need to be tested. Right, and, and I love the laundry list of things of questions to ask about, you know, can can that service provider you hire subcontract, is that a key term and condition of your, your contracts? Um, I know COSA put out a cloud service provider um, guidance out there, and when I go out speaking sometimes, I, I mention, you, you know, it's not just the fact that you picked a provider, but you need to understand their security policies and procedures of that provider, and also what are they doing to ensure that your assets, right, corporate assets are being protected because not all of them view your data the same way. You know, some, some providers think, oh, well, you're in this geographical location, therefore everybody gets submitted this way. They don't, they don't think about parceling out, let's say, by um, customer type sometimes or by, let's say, um, security-related issues or the type of data that you have. Um, so it's, it's critical to start asking those questions. Some of them are, are in that guidance, but I like the, the fact that you've mentioned COBIT. That's a very key, fr- key framework for um, IT auditors. Um, and then there's also that ISO, um, I, it was uh, 2000 and, was it 7 that you mentioned, which is an IT um, security? Uh, for IT security, 27,001. Yeah. 27,000, thank you. And it goes from 1 through 6. And then there's one for IT governance, which really, uh, you know, COBIT is in line with, which is ISO 38500. So, you know, are they, are they employing those and are they, you know, are, they, are their auditors finding that they're following, they're compliant with those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I, I really appreciate those those little tidbits for our, our listeners. And I wanted to, to switch gears to something that was a wow factor for me is the fact that you've published three, three books in 21 months, which is great. It's inspirational for me, number one. Um, I've always wanted to write a book. But what was your inspiration for this latest book on information governance? It's called Information Governance Concepts, Strategies, and Best Practices. Uh, well, I actually signed the contract with Wiley uh, three years ago to write a series of three books, and um, and and they the third one was this last one on information <laughs> governance. And actually, I had a narrower scope proposed originally. I was going to just concentrate on documents and records, but as I progressed through the the writing and research and publication of the. Uh, the other two books, the one on protecting uh, confidential e-documents and the second one on managing electronic records. Uh, and then as the information governance reference model came into play, which identifies five key impact areas of information governance, I broadened the, uh, the, uh, the scope of that book. But really my motivation was to de- formally define the field and to bring some clarity and actionable plans in the IG space. And and to identify you know, best practices out there in, in what is really a nascent field. Uh, information governance is something that um, 
you know, I spoke in L.A. a couple of weeks ago at a, at a meeting and, and of people who, who this audience is supposed to be concerned with information governance, and I asked them, who here can tell me the definition of information governance? Who has a clear idea? Not a single hand went up. And so, you know, that's, that's the problem. And, um, you know, I have a, developed a short 10-word ten ten word definition of information governance, which is control of information to meet legal, regulatory, and business demands. So control meaning your processes, your policies, and controls. And uh, legal meaning, uh, you know, e-discovery or FRCP rules, um, any kind of legal requirements. Regulatory would be external um, requirements to, to retain records for a certain period of time, five years, seven years, whatever it might be. And your business demands, which would be your what your goals are and in your internal business plans. And, uh, and so you can do all that with information governance by controlling the information and really who has access to what, what information when. But uh, when I started writing the book, the definition of information governance, the ones that are out there were, I mean, I'll give you a, a couple examples. Uh, Gartner's definition, which is still on their website, is the specification of decision rights and an accountability framework to ensure appropriate behavior in the valuation, creation, storage, use, archiving, and deletion of information. It includes the processes, roles, and policies, standards, and metrics that ensure the effective and efficient use of information in enabling an organization to achieve its goals. Well, all that's true, but nobody can remember it. You know, it's just right. sort of... Right, and your 10-word sort of, sort of, version is a lot simpler. Yeah, it's sort it, of too wordy, and I just yeah. had to try, to try to boil that down. And then uh, Association of Records Managers and Administrators, um, they jumped in, and their definition, and this is still what they hold true on their... And, and is, is, it's a strategic framework, and these are true, but they're just wordy. A strategic framework composed of standards, processes, roles, and metrics that hold organizations and individuals accountable to create, organize, secure, maintain, use, and dispose of information in ways that align with and contribute to the organization's goals. Again, nobody can remember that. So, uh, in short, information governance to me is just control of information to meet legal, regulatory, and business demands. We can break it down and add to it from there, but you need to have somewhat of a, a more succinct uh, definition, I believe. So that was the key problem really is bring clarity into the marketplace as information governance matures as a discipline because it's a, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a cross-functional, multidisciplinary um, approach to managing information that involves legal people, it involves auditing people, it involves records managers, it involves IT, it involves your privacy and security people, and your business units as well. So it crosses really a, a big swatch of the organization. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's not just one aspect of the organization. I mean, it, it covers all the major departments. I mean, because it, it, when you think of objectives, it's not just one objective. It's, it's, the, it's the reason why the organization exists. So it's going to, you know, cross um, all key departments. Um, and, and, one, and one big thing, one big problem was, you know, CIOs and the IT department, they're just responsible for sort of the pipes and, and the infrastructure, and, you know, they're, they're cranking out reports and, and so forth. But in the organization, 
who gets access to that and, and who can use it and when. All of those policies need to be enforced by IT, but the, but the policies have to come from the business units and from the people in the functional departments, from the people in legal, from the people in records management. And so uh, it's something that's gone sort of unheeded. And um, really, information governance would have, politics aside, it would have saved the NSA a lot of, uh, a lot of headache, heartache, because you know, your policy should be that a lower-level employee shouldn't have access to certain documents. And your policy should be that you're running things like document analytics, where you can see where if a person normally downloads 20 documents or 30 documents a day, and suddenly they're downloading thousands, or in this case, millions, a big red flag should go off. There should be technology in there that's leveraged to be able to audit and control what your policies are. And obviously, in that case, the government failed there. And same thing with the WikiLeaks scandal and the DOD. Low-level private has access to confidential information and spills it. Well, policies should have been in place, and they should have been enforced and audited by using technology. Yeah, there's a couple of stories also. I mean, locally here in Los Angeles, uh, I believe it was UCLA or Cedar cyanide um, it, it, was, it was a brand-name um, health care provider. Um, and... In short, there was an audit done on who has access and, and why would they need access to certain records, healthcare records. And it turns out that certain celebrities, uh, their healthcare records were being accessed by people that shouldn't have had a- access, and they were being monitored and viewed, et cetera. So when things leak out to the press, it was kind of like, well, wait a minute, maybe we should do an audit as, as to how certain things at the hospital, <laughs> at this facility, how did it leak out because the patients were like, hey, I, I never told my friends any of this detail, but yet it's getting out in Los Angeles to, to some of these, um, you know, TMZ and these other uh, websites and, and other reporters about mm-hmm. some of their medical, you know, what was going on. Mm-hmm. And so an audit was conducted, and sure enough, it was because no one was actually um, auditing the process of the monitoring of who who actually needs access to certain files. They had more of an open policy. And so that's actually one of the common failures we see is is not only the access rights, but it's changing roles. So someone in, let's say, accounting, they assume that this accounting function needs certain rights. And then what often happens, and this is where they they get an audit failure, is they, based on, let's say, performance evaluations or their, their, their function or there's been a reduction in force or maybe an increase in, in the business unit um, and, and they need to increase um, their rights to, to certain things, but no one's ever informed of IT of a changing role. You follow, mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. something needs to be reviewed. And IT, will, they should not know unless you tell them. How, how, how are they going to know that someone's function, their day-to-day activities and their job responsibilities have changed because there's so many different people running around doing it in, in other departments? So it's more of a reactive mode, and it, it's, it's always one of those audit tests that takes forever for us to get the details on in terms of, okay, department head or supervisors, it is your job function to evaluate that person's role and their job responsibility, and do they need to be switched on or off in these areas when it comes to access? And arguably, it takes some months for them to get it back to us in terms of the evidence because it's it's one of those pain points. They they would love an automated solution just to kind of ping them, saying, "This is what you had last year. Um, here are the new changes for this individual. 
if they were granted any new changes, because they should have been aware of them anyways. Um, but but more of a, instead of us doing it annually or, or sometimes quarterly, there, there should be a better process to kind of evaluate. And it's always a pain point that I notice yeah. in a typical audit. Um, yeah, that's one thing I wanted to bring up later. That's what I call credential creep, where a, a person in an organization, as they get promoted or transferred, they continue to gather credentials, which have so that the, the access that they have continues to grow. And um, there is some, there are automated solutions to that. It's called IAM, in, Identity and Access Management Software. So if your listeners look up IAM or in Identity and Access Software. Uh, uh, and access management, they will find out that there is a way to automate that. Um, one example of that is a, a guy in a bank. I think it was maybe Credit Lyonnais. It was in it was in France, and he just kept moving through the bank and getting promoted and transferred. And each time he gathered more and more credentials to the point where he had access to billions of dollars. He was making these bets on the side with billions of dollars. So. Um, you don't want to have credential creep like that where people gather credentials as their roles changes through the organization. So you're right on about that. Yeah, yeah. And another kind of item that, that I know our listeners want to hear more about, and, and, and this is actually a hot topic in, in a recent discussion I had with chief audit executives here locally in terms of a risk-based approach. So, you know, both auditors and the company want a risk-based approach when they're auditing like accounts or disclosures, et cetera. But what do you recommend to accomplish the most effective risk-based approach to auditing intellectual property? Well, I would, you know, use, I would use a structured planning approach that, you know, to just basically any kind of risk management. You identify the risks, evaluate the risks, and mitigate the risks. Uh, and, and borrowing from Chapter 4 of my current my new book, which is titled Information Risk Planning and Management, uh, these, are, these are some steps. Uh, create a risk profile, which is just a basic building block of, of risk management, and that's to assist your managers and executives in, in understanding the risks associated with your stated business objectives and, and uh, resources that are allocated, but in a structured way. So you know, it could just be a table, a listing of, say, the top ten potential risks. But it involves identifying, documenting, and assessing, and prioritizing those risks uh, that you may face in meeting your business objectives. You might want to look out not just for that year, but look out three to five years. And um, like I said, it could just be a top ten list. And then you have your, your risks, and then you're going to perform a risk analysis. So uh, what is the potential impact? So are we talking about a major breach of our intellectual property? Are we talking about loss of of, of design plans, uh, Ford Motor Company a few years ago had uh, some employees steal some designs for hybrid motors and, and sell them to the Chinese. Ford's loss was calculated to be fifty to mil- to hundred million dollars just on that Jesus. one breach. Wow! You kind of you kind of can't get it back once you lose it. So what's the worst that can happen? So you determine the impact, and then you evaluate the risk levels of, in terms of you know how likely is that to happen. And then you make your reports and recommendations, and you try to review that uh, periodically and update it. Um, and then you'll have a, a risk mitigation plan. So what are your countermeasures? What, what policies are in place? What technologies are you going to leverage? And, uh, and, and then develop metrics and measure those results, and then execute that, that plan and, um, and audit it. I'll, I'll give you an example, just a very simple one, really, for, for your listeners of my, uh, my, what I had to do when I launched uh, a series of online training classes just uh, last month. 
So I'm, I'm actually talking to you from Mexico right now, and so I looked at what are my risks. I've got online video that I'm going to broadcast, and, and uh, we have kind of flaky power sometimes, so power outage is a real possibility. I can't have that when I'm conducting a five-hour class. So I bought a backup a UPS, uh, uninterruptible power supply. I tested it over one weekend. It gave me more than 90 minutes worth of time on the modem and computer, so that's great. And I thought, what happens if something happens to that UPS? Okay, that's a risk. I bought another one, a backup to my backup. Okay, so uh, they're both connected, they're both running. Now I've got that problem pretty well addressed. Then I had software pro challenges. Brand new software, don't really know how to run it, not sure. I, I can't have a failure when I have students in class online. That, so this is a, a big risk. My initial classes I have to go well, so I hired additional tech resources from the provider to be there for the first one to two hours each day to make sure things got connected and everything was working. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I, and the result was I've had two classes, uh, 15 hours apiece for three days, and I've had 100% uptime. So that, that worked. And I'm more comfortable now. I don't think I need the tech resources anymore, maybe, maybe a little bit. Then I had platform risks. Um, I was using XP because I'm kind of curmudgeon, old, drag me along, fine. So uh, the XP announcement came out. They're ending that. And same thing with the software provider at the end of the year. So I bought a Win7 machine. So I bought a Win7 machine, but what happens if something goes wrong with that? Okay, I bought a backup Win7 machine. So I'm using Windows 7. I've got a laptop and a desktop. Now I'm going to broadcast video, and I've got a potential problem, a single point of failure if I have a webcam that, can, that goes out or it doesn't work or the USB connection doesn't work. So I have two backup webcams, and I've tested them. They work. Um, another risk was just losing my IP, losing the content that I created in 30-hour class. Uh, you know, so I don't publish the PowerPoints of that to the public domain, and uh, the training sessions are closed, and it's a secure network. Um, the only single point of failure I was left with is the network. And so far, uh, knock on wood, it's been reliable. I just, I, I, I don't know, I, I can't remember it being down maybe once or maybe twice for a, a short period in the last year or two. So I just decided that was a risk that I'm willing to take. So I, I could have installed a second network from a different provider, which would really give me redundancy there. Um, but I, I took the risk. I felt it was, it was okay to take the risk. All I did was my backup is I'll just walk outside and make a phone call to the, with a U.S. cell phone and let one of my colleagues know that I've you know, got a problem. So that, in my simple way, uh, were, were, were my way, that was my way of identifying my risks and, and, and protecting my own intellectual property and making sure that, that these classes uh, came off um, without a hitch. Without a hitch. Yeah, no. I mean, that's a very thorough, you know, story about how you in practice are, are identifying your own risk. And then obviously what's your risk appetite? You know, I, the, this whole network thing, you were willing to take on that risk because your risk appetite was there to take it. And most companies, um, they, they don't start from that point. They start from, hey, we're in business, we're making some money, or these are our customers, we need to service them. And then in terms of the, those, those types of risk assessments, which need to be monitored actually, Frequently, not just a one annual year, you know, yearly exercise. Um, these risks do change, and and it's actually something that I noticed in the new COSO framework. In some of the guidance materials, they put out a case study where a company 
Uh, it's a financial institution. They have different divisions, and in the case study, they, they talk about, you know, this one division takes off like a rocket, right? And everybody would naturally kind of say, hey, great, applaud that division for making more money, and it's, you know, very effective. Uh, but in the assessment of the COSO framework, in the case study that COSO puts itself in, in terms of an example, they say, well, wait a minute. The problem here is that um, nobody assessed the risk properly for that division doing a quick uptick, and then also the risk of the, the changes in the business. Um, that's one of the key indicators in Principle 9 of the new framework. So what's happening in the marketplace is people are trying to identify this best practice in the risk assessment. And in the materials that COSA put out, they said, you have a material weakness not only in terms of the controls of this division, C or D, whatever the, uh, letter they gave it, but you also failed in the risk assessment process itself. And it's because it, you, you don't wait till this one annual review of controls you follow. It's something that should have been thought about on a regular basis, and, and, and that's what was in the case study. So whenever I present that particular case study on this risk, uh, in the risk assessment, what could cause a material weakness in your risk assessment process, I bring that up because people naturally think it was a control failure of just, you know, revenue recognition of the case study, but in, actu- in reality it's not only that, but the failure to even have a good process in your risk assessment um, analysis. So it's something that I, I know a lot of our, our listeners are probably taking to heart because it's been a hot topic actually for, for a number of years. I wanted to, to switch gears on, on areas of improvement, or some people would call it like the most common mistakes auditors seem to do when, that, when they're auditing the management and protection of intellectual property. So what advice would you give our listeners who need to audit, okay, intellectual property, what advice would you give them to audit IP better? Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, uh, some of this is going to be really a review of what we've talked about today, and I'll offer uh, a couple of more um, uh, insights, I believe. And, uh, and, and really, I think um, one thing is that auditing, you really it should be postured as a, a continuous process improvement sort of tool uh, in the organization, not not so much uh, punishment. So you know, when people are worried about getting audited, I mean, they just you know, audit, audit. You know, they they uh, they get scared, they they uh, they get nervous. Um, so one thing is just posturing the the audit as a way to see where we are and uh, how we can improve. And it and and your process of securing your IP is going to be an ongoing one because the business environment changes and technologies change. It should provide feedback on how well you're doing and where you need to fine-tune certain policies, or maybe there are gaps in technology. So, you know, sort of more how are we doing and how are we get better? How do we get better? Not so much, um, you know, you guys messed up and and here it is. Um, but I would say uh, critically to that that. Perhaps a mistake that auditors might make is to too narrowly define uh, intellectual property, to define it only as those things that are, are patentable or a copyright or, or uh, can be registered legally. So I, I, would, I would broaden that definition into confidential documents and internal plans, and uh, that includes uh, databases and, and, and records and so forth. Um, I think a, a, an, another potential mistake is not considering some of the newer technologies. Well, a lot of people aren't familiar with these technologies. If you're an auditor and you're not following this stuff all day long like I do, you're not going to know about some of these things. So maybe you want to consider uh, evaluating document analytics and implementing that in your organization. So you can see 
who's printing documents and how long. Document analytics, you can actually tell how long someone spends reading a document. If, if they're spending an inordinate amount of time reading certain documents, you'll know it. Or if they're downloading an inordinate amount of documents or, or printing. Uh, all those things, it'll set off red flags and you'll be able to detect those anomalies. And those are ways to use leverage technology to help you in the auditing process. Uh, another key technology, I believe, that can be employed to protect uh, IP is information rights management. And that's where you are protecting the, that document from its creation all the way through its entire life cycle. So it's like a security wrapper that goes around a document upon creation, and you're going to assign the rights to it. Um, and those rights will be assigned generally by roles and responsibilities in the organization. The higher level you are, the more um, you have access to that, those internal documents. So I would say make sure you keep an eye out for newer technologies that can emerge and, and that are emerging and that can help you. Um, and, and I think a, another risk is not considering just people, training people. The, the, the loss of IP is often, and, and really the majority time, it can be unintentional. It can be just people aren't aware that if they send an email from their business account to their personal account, suddenly now it's out on an unsecured network and it can be hacked. And uh, so, so people need to be aware of what the email policy is, and, and that it should be enforced and it should be monitored and, and audited. So uh, you need to, this, this all involves training and communications. So you should audit not just uh, you know, the, 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 the numbers and, the, and the, the, the metrics. You should audit, do you have a training program? Are people, people regularly being, is it being communicated that we need to protect our IP and here's some ways that you can accidentally leak IP and, and you may not even know it. Um, another one is is credential creep, which you uh, which which you mentioned before, where people move from different positions in the organization, but you don't have identity access and management IAM software to track uh, exactly that the credentials meet their responsibilities in their current job. And I believe that also that that an auditing plan and the approach should continue to evolve and change as technology in the business environment changes. And, uh, and I think it's an ongoing program. It's a way to provide input back into the organization on how well you're doing and a way to uh, continue to improve. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I, I hear you on, on um, kind of not only understanding some key technology sources as a potential solution, but it's also kind of um, one aspect that I've noticed in terms of my career. Um, it's it's, it's uh it's people sometimes fail to ask other colleagues that are trying to address the same issue. You know, um, not not everybody sees certain risks or the goals, you know, the same way. And also, I would argue, you know, the solutions to it. Um, some people might have a great budget, you know, to to um, better audit IP, and then some people could say, "Look, I just don't have the budget. How do I do it on a shoestring, so to speak?" And reaching out to colleagues like other chief audit executives or CIOs, et cetera. To have a, a you know confidential discussion without you know giving out too many details of how how are they doing it you know um, what are some of the risks that they're seeing or what's what are some of the best practices that they're seeing so kind of everything you said in, including you know reach out to other colleagues that are probably addressing the same issues that they are. Mm-hmm. I, Absolutely. Yeah. 
So I, I want to first of all, thank you so much, Robert. I mean, I think this is just a great uh, interview for a lot of the compliance listeners here today, and I know everyone listening is very grateful for your um, very technical insights. I really appreciate it. And just as a reminder to our listeners, you can find Robert Smallwood's latest book titled Information Governance, Concept Strategies and Best Practices on Amazon.com. And please visit our website at www.avivaspectrum.com forward slash podcast for the video version of this and other compliance interviews. This is Sonia Luna, CEO and founder of Aviva Spectrum, signing off. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.